It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Previously on Election Rewind. I am honored by your nomination and I accept it. I am proud to accept your nomination to be the next vice president. My friend Governor Bush believes in an America that is so much more than the sum of its divided parts. And it's absolutely essential that we get behind Al Gore. And I welcome you to the first of three 90-minute debates. Under my plan, I will put Medicare in an ironclad lockbox. If this were a spending contest, I'd come in second. (laughs) You will not find a safe harbor. We will find you. And justice will prevail. But then came that fateful Thursday before the election, and uh, I didn't feel so good that day. Episode 4. October Surprise. George W. Bush kicked off the last week of this bitter, nail-biting presidential race, not with partisan battling, but with a quiet visit to a private, faith-based Christian relief agency with recovering alcoholics. Have faith and just have a peaceful heart and, you know, just having the good things in life without having, you know, struggle, you know? It's the most powerful statement you get. That's why we're here. God bless you. It was an unusually personal and unguarded moment in the midst of a knockdown, dragout political fight. I quit drinking in 1986. Haven't had a drop since then. It wasn't because of a government program, by the way, in my particular case. It's because I heard a higher call. It was the 1994 election for Texas governor. Um, I was a weekend anchor at our affiliate in Austin, Texas, Fox 7, KTBC. Fox News Chief Congressional Correspondent, Mike Emanuel. And my news director pulled me in one day and she said, uh, the 5 o'clock anchor is going to cover the Ann Richards campaign. You are going to cover the George W. Bush campaign for governor. He'll never win, but it'll be great exposure for you. And so as a guy who had covered smaller town news in Midland, Odessa and Waco, Texas, where I got sent to the Rattlesnake Roundup, the Rodeo and the Ostrich Festival, covering the governor's race in Austin, Texas was pretty exciting. So I was probably the first TV reporter on the bus with George W. Bush, the baseball owner of the Texas Rangers in that 1994 campaign. I was the spokesman on the Bush campaign. We had several spokespeople. And um, I was, I suppose, the principal spokesperson. Former spokesperson for George W. Bush, Ari Fleischer. I was brought in by Karen Hughes, who was the communications director. And I had previously worked on Capitol Hill. I was a press secretary for three congressmen and one senator. But I left Capitol Hill in March of 1999 to become communications director for Elizabeth Dole when she ran for president. And when things didn't work out for her, she dropped out of the race. And Governor Bush asked me to move to Texas and become his spokesman on the campaign. And whether or not you're a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent, we're asking for your support. We're asking you to join our cause and join us in victory on November the 7th. They were, I think, relentlessly on message. I remember many, many times. And so I knew Karen Hughes for a good six years before the presidential campaign and we'd be in 
somewhere in Iowa in early 2000, and I'd say, hey, you know, Karen, how you doing? And she'd say, you know, it's a great day to talk education reform, Mike. And like, like nonstop on message. And so I think um, he was a very disciplined candidate at that point. And I think his campaign reflected that. And so there was like a, a strong inner circle of Carl Rove being the the architect who, you know, had built his ascendancy to the governor's mansion in Austin and who is now being trusted to run a national campaign. Karen Hughes, the communications person, um, who he trusted like a, a sister, basically. And then Joe Alba, who kind of made the trains run for the campaign. But it was like that very tight inner circle that had come from, you know, from Austin with him um, and a handful of other Texans around him. And then a lot of other people to fill in the blanks from there. But like um, there was a big, you know, focus on loyalty, uh, people they could trust and people they knew. And, uh, you know, it was a tight knit bunch. Thank you very much. Who? Ross Perot did? Fantastic. I'm glad to have his support. And uh, I think it's an indication of uh, the fact that I'm picking up support from a lot of voters who aren't necessarily associated with the Republican Party. And I'm proud to have him on my team. George Bush was correct, quick, to the point. Tell me what uh, what they're going to ask me. What do we think I need to know? Um, you just have to be fast on your feet and immediate with information for the governor. And if you needed to detain him, you detained him. And you said, hold on, hold on. We got more to talk about. Um, very affable, enjoyable, backslapping. A fun guy to be around and a serious guy to be around. He, he combined it and he was a great boss. For all our children's sake, above all, let us as a party strive from this moment on to make that century a reality. Fellow Republicans, fellow Americans, let's elect George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. One of the key roles that Colin Powell played in George W. Bush's campaign was he was the most popular African-American political figure in, 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 in the late 90s. Co-founder of The Dispatch, Jonah Goldberg. He was seen, of, I think rightly so, as a man of integrity and a man of character, and he appealed to people, and he was a moderate Republican. And his support of W, no one inside the campaign really thought it was going to win over a lot of black voters. It was going to win over a lot of uh, moderate female voters and other voters who wanted to have permission to vote Republican without being called racist. And so Colin Powell was extremely useful in, in making that argument. I don't think it was purely tokenism because he was a deeply respected guy with this amazing record of accomplishment, you know, first Gulf War, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But it was, that was a major concern for, for George W. Bush was, taking the edges off of the perceptions of the Republican party as being too judgy, too racial, too finger waggy and all of that kind of thing. The tale of two markets continues the best of times for the NASDAQ, some very shaky times for the Dow. But is this shift toward all things tech a trend or sign of things to come? Beginning in the early part of 2000, much of the internet boom was showing hints of going bust. Host of Your World on the Fox News Channel, Neil Cavuto. The NASDAQ itself, which had hit a record that year, steadily moving down. The economy technically was slowing. We were in, in you know, recession territory here. 
just wasn't pronounced. It was, you know, slow downs go, that's the kind that you like. Well over highs, but still the economy chugging along. So that too, uh, you know, favored Al Gore. Uh, So that was part of the thinking that he led in most polls, albeit not by much. But, you know, markets were doing well, the economy was doing well, maybe not as well, but between the internet boom and all the new jobs created, some 20 million of them at the time, um, you know, that was supposed to help him secure uh, yet another, you know, Democrat uh, holding the White House for four more years. And and, uh, there was some concern within Democratic circles that Al Gore had not utilized Bill Clinton more to help him on the stump. Are you ready to win this election for Al Gore and Joe There were places where he could be helpful. You could send him in to the African-American community. Campaign strategist for Al Gore, Bob Shrum. You could have him do African-American radio and 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 uh, you could have, have him campaign with Latinos. All of that, all those places he could be helpful. On welfare on civil rights, on choice, on all the issues that will shape our future. I can tell you that as we move into the future, the nominee of the Democratic Party, my partner and friend for the last eight years, understands where we are, where we're going, and how it will affect ordinary citizens more than any other public figure in this country over the last 20 years. He is the right person to be the first president of the 21st century, Al Gore. To be honest, a lot of the events were scheduled so that they wouldn't make the evening national news. Thank you, Mr. President. When I look out at this wonderful crowd and feel the enthusiasm from all of you and look into the far reaches of these blocks and see as many people as can possibly fit into this Area, I know we're going to win with your help in November. There was a sense at the time, if I recall correctly, that that George W. Bush had the wind at his back, and that, um, which is something that you would expect generally after a president of one party holds it for two terms, particularly when it was plagued by scandal in its second year. Um, there was also a great deal of Bush nostalgia, um, more for George H.W. Bush than for George W. Bush, but they very effectively used that name recognition um, to get the uh, the nomination in the first place. And, um, and it was generally seen that Al Gore was not a great candidate. Um, so it's, you know, I mean, if you, I, I suspect that there is not a shoeshine guy um, anywhere on the eastern seaboard that Karl Rove isn't, hasn't told at one point or another that um, they were looking to do much better in 2000 had it not been for this October surprise. Get the next episode of Election Rewind the moment it's released. Subscribe at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. <laughs> Our parents had Zeppelin and we have the pumpkins and now they're gone. So what are we left with? with Some CDs. According to the National Institute of Health and Occupational Safety, 60 million Americans have computer eye strain. I want to be your senator from New York. Thank you all very much. 
concept of a late hit is a very old one in American politics um, that goes back a very long way. Uh, but I think it was, I think it's fair to say that the 2000 presidential campaign is what made it sort of a household term in terms of American politics. You know, every now and then some term that is a, used widely in politics trickles down so that people use it regularly themselves. And I think it was the 2000 race that did it. It was here on Ocean Ave in Kennebunkport that George W. Bush was arrested for operating under the influence Labor Day weekend 24 years ago. According to court documents obtained first by Fox 51 News, Bush was arrested for OUI in the early morning hours of September 4th, 1976. The arresting officer, Calvin Bridges, tells Fox 51 he spotted Bush driving erratically on his way to the family compound at Walker's Point. Bridges says Bush ran off the road and into some hedges. After doing a balloon test, Bridges determined Bush had a blood alcohol level over the legal limit, which in Maine at the time was .10. According to court records, Bush was arrested and was released after posting $500 bail. The following month, court records show Bush pled guilty and paid a fine of $150. Kenny Bunkboard police say he also had his license suspended for 30 days. Thank you all. Uh, obviously, there's a report out tonight that 24 years ago, I was uh, apprehended in Kenny Bunkport, Maine for a DUI. That's an accurate story. I'm not proud of that. I uh, oftentimes said that uh, years ago I made some mistakes. I occasionally drank too much, and I did on that night. Uh, I was pulled over. I admitted to the policeman that I had been drinking. I paid a fine, and uh, I regret that it happened, uh, but it did. I've learned my lesson. As I mentioned, I, uh, to many of you know, that I quit drinking uh, alcohol in 1986, and it was the right decision for me to make then. I'd be glad to answer a few questions. I don't think anybody inside the campaign had an inkling that the information about the DWI was going to come out. Now, there were a few people who knew about the DWI, a couple people on the, from the staff when the, George Bush was governor, were very close to the governor, to Governor Bush, Carl Rove, Karen Hughes. They knew the story. Well, I, I think the, uh, the timing of, uh, of an announcement like this uh, coming out uh, four to five days before the election uh, uh, about an incident that happened uh, 24 years ago about which even the governor's daughters did not know, I, I think is, is certainly questionable. They had discussed with that Governor Bush about whether we should, as a campaign, should George Bush get the information out himself? Don't let there ever be a surprise, a June surprise, a July surprise, let alone an October surprise. Control it and get it out yourself. And ultimately, the governor made the decision not to do that. And the reason he gave was he wanted to set an example for his children. And he had teenage children. And he just thought if they heard it, he had done this, it would be an inconsistent message with what he was trying to teach them about their taking responsibility and not drinking and driving. So it was the father's decision not to divulge it. A politician's decision would have been to divulge it. And he decided not to, and of course, politically speaking, that came back and bit us. There was a, a, a local reporter in Maine, I guess, who first got the tip. And so Bush was very suspicious about who was behind it. Uh, the Gore campaign says it wasn't them. 
um, I believe it was a local attorney in Maine who had some knowledge or, or had heard rumors that there may have been an arrest back in 1976 and who may have tipped off a local reporter. A local reporter did some checking into it and found out there was an arrest in Maine where his his parents' summer home in Kenny Bunkport was. I spotted the uh, lawyer leaving. He was leaving the courthouse and I uh, just ran up to him. He was going down the street. I ran up to him and I said, you know, what do you have? I've heard that you have something on George W. Bush regarding an OUI. Is that true? And at that point he said, uh, yes, I do. Um, and said that he had some, uh, had a document and it was in his office and he was going to go get it and give me a copy. It first got out that way and then Fox jumped on the story pretty quickly and it took a few hours to get out everywhere, but um, it was certainly upset, upsetting to the governor and his team. Um, but, you know, it was it was quite a surprise there in the final hours. Well, I think it was surprise. You know, you're looking for something. I think these incidents have come back uh, at the time. Uh, I think this was an incident from 1976. And here you're you're in the 2000 election. So it was a quarter century prior. Um, if it was a development in present day or something that we just learned or, uh, you know, you know, uh, an affair or something that, that, that was in recent history. But this seemed almost ancient. I think people put it in that perspective, but it was a surprise. It got enormous headlines. Uh, I remember uh, the standard line that Democrats were using was, what else is he not telling us? What else is he keeping from us? So it's sort of fed a sort of a frenzy. I'd be glad to answer a few questions. Well, came out now because a news uh, TV station in Maine broke the story, but I made the decision uh, that uh, as a dad, uh, I, I didn't want my girls doing the kinds of things I did, and I told them not to drink and drive. It was a decision I made. Uh, I've been very upfront with the people of the state of Texas that I, you know, that I had been drinking in the past, that I had made mistakes, and uh, the story broke. I think, I think that's an interesting question. Why now? Four days before an election. <laughs> no, the girls did not know until tonight. I, I talked to them. Oh, there was kind of a feeding frenzy about it. Um, there was, uh, part of it was, I would say, because, I mean, we don't have to hold a seminar here, but I think it is fair to say, even back then, um, the bulk of the Washington press corps and the mainstream media were liberal. Um, they may not have liked Bill Clinton, at least towards the end, but there was a certain sense of how unfair it was, was that all the talk of scandal was on the Democratic side. Uh, you know, Al Gore was kind of squeaky clean, or at least that was the image that he tried to portray. But he had some, you know, scandal stuff stick to him in the um, in the second year of the Clinton administration. And this was seen as a way to sort of even the scales a little bit. And particularly for a hostile press corps that, you know, still didn't like George W. Bush very much. Um, and so there was a bit of a sort of flood the zone freeding frenzy about the whole issue. Um, and I think it's fair to say that, you know, even if it wasn't conscious on everybody's part who participated in it, there was a certain glee. Aha, this is what is going to cause push the election. I was drinking beer, yeah, with John Newcomb. How much did you have? How many beers? Yeah. <laughs> Enough to have... Uh, been in violation of the of the law. I can't remember how many beers. It was 24 years ago, 
And uh, that's the interesting thing about this. Here we are with four days to go in a campaign, and we're discussing something that happened 24 years ago. You know, the only thing you could do at that point was acknowledge the truth, say it took place a long, long time ago, which of course it did. People knew George Bush had stopped drinking. So I don't think anybody thought it was an ongoing matter, but it was a matter of some level of disappointment. There were people who asked the governor previously, do you have skeletons in your closet? Are there things we need to know? And I think he was hoping this would never come out. And when it did, there was a feeling that he let people down. He didn't tell everybody. And the only thing you can do at that point is tell the truth and throw yourself on the mercy of the people. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. Can you tell us some more about the, the night? Did you spend some time in jail? Did you? Uh, no, I didn't spend any night in jail there. I did not spend time in jail. Governor, do you believe this is relevant to your candidacy in any fashion? No, I think the people knew that I had been straightforward, that I had made mistakes in the past. This happened 24 years ago. I do find it interesting that it's come out four or five days before an election. I, uh, I've been straightforward with people saying that I used to drink too much in the past. I'm straightforward with people saying that I don't drink now. Yeah. Yes, I was. Yes, I was. I was. Else? Is there anything else that you? I didn't. Try, I'm not trying to get away with anything. <laughs> I had to spend a lot of time on television denying that we had anything to do with the leaking of the story because we had nothing to do with it. Bob Shrum. I was horrified. Uh, it took the campaign off of those central issues where we were making real progress: uh, Social Security, Medicare, prescription drug benefit, education. Uh, to that becoming the story that sucked all the oxygen out for a couple of days. We've turned the biggest deficits into the biggest surpluses, and instead of a bunch of recessions, we've had a, a tripled stock market and continued growth, and instead of high unemployment, we got 22 million new jobs and the lowest African-American unemployment ever and the lowest Latino unemployment ever. Yeah, all kinds of suspicions about who could be behind this, and we weren't the only ones, of course, engaging in who did it. The media was trying to figure out who did it. Ari Fleischer. And, of course, in a campaign, you always think that your opponent is behind anything that's critical or bad. But we were never able, at least as I recall, to nail it down and figure it out. And even if we did, we already acknowledged it was true. So even had it been Gore, and there was somebody who was connected to the Gore campaign from Maine who had a connection, who may have known. Uh, but even so, it wouldn't have really changed things. You know, partisans would want to know, aha, our opponent did it. But it was the fundamental truth of the fact that he got the DWI and hadn't revealed it that did the damage. Now, I, you know, I, I, at a certain point, I stopped worrying about it and didn't try to figure out who was behind it, who did it, et cetera. So if anybody ever later proved who was behind it, it'd be news to me. I do not know. No one has ever credibly established anything like that. It was something I think that the Bush campaign said because it seemed like a good defense, but it just was not true. It wasn't in our interest. <laughs> we were we were. We were gaining ground, campaigning on the issues we wanted to campaign on. 
And on the message we wanted to campaign on, which is that Gore is the guy who will really fight for you for ordinary middle class families. I, as I mentioned to you, I'm a dad. I was trying to, trying to teach my children right from wrong. I chose the course that, that to my daughters, I was going to tell them they shouldn't drive and drink. And uh, that's the course of action I took. And Thank I, you all very much. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm the first to say that uh, what I did was wrong. Uh, and I've corrected that. And I think the people of people of America will understand that. I think the interesting thing is, is that why five days before an election, all of a sudden, po- that's, that's, that's your job. <laughs> I got I got my suspicions. Thank you all. I've got my suspicions. I don't know. It particularly damaged us, we think, with evangelical Christians who were just disappointed in George Bush's behavior. And that is one of the factors that made our feel good three four point lead evaporate into a basically a dead tie i think it may have helped bush marginally because of the way he handled it he was very forthright he said it happened and you know it 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 it, and 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 thank god i turned my life around and i did that with the help of god i i don't think that hurt bush at all the function of an october surprise is that if this thing had broken in august you know, you take a little dip in the polls, but then, you know, you give Bush time to explain himself, to apologize. People price it in, but it didn't drive, those things didn't drive coverage. The 24-hour news cycle wasn't sort of ingrained in our DNA in the same way. Jonah Goldberg. And so there was this fear among Republicans, among conservatives, that it was such a late hit that it wouldn't give the Bush campaign time to adapt its messaging to sort of win back trust. He, remember, he, he like a lot of Republicans, was really suffering with um, suburban women, with white women. Uh, there was this gender gap that goes back a long ways that exists today. Um, and in particular, because DUI was the, the movement for Mothers Against Drunk Driving really was a sort of upscale white female populist movement. Um, that charge had had special significance given how much he needed to win back some of that demographic and given how that so much of his campaign was in fact about winning over suburban women uh, that's what a lot of compassionate conservatism was about and all the rest and so a DUI thing was seen by a lot of people or feared by a lot of people as being a significant blow to his chances may not be the death of the book as we know it, but several corporate giants believe ebooks are the next big thing. Electronic books sold online, read on screen. The four officers facing second-degree murder charges in the shooting of Amadou Diallo arrived early and anxious for their day in court. Um, after 17 years, I would like to announce my retirement from the Miami Dolphins. I hope you'll take my word for this because I've spent most of my adult life studying economics and the development of our country the things that have happened in the last eight years the good things are nothing compared to the good things that can happen in the next eight years for a long period of time my opponent was trying to escape the shadow of the president but i was reading in the newspaper the shadow is back the heart of george bush's message is that he was not bill clinton that he would restore honor and dignity to the Oval Office. 
And you have to remember, in 2000 and post-Monica, there was just this sense of, how could Bill Clinton have done this? Whether he should or shouldn't be impeached. There was a yearning for a man of character. And that was something that a lot of people believed in George Bush. Uh, The issues are really domestic. George Bush ran on tax cuts. He ran on education reform. He ran on closing the achievement gap between minority children and white children. Those were the big issues that animated the debate in the year 2000. Under our vision, Social Security will not be just a government program. Social Security will become a, a chance for younger folks to build their own portfolios, to have their own asset base that they can pass from one generation to the next. No, ours is a positive vision for a better tomorrow for this great land. I think everybody thought it was going to be close. Um, You know, Al Gore had some built-in advantages being uh, Bill Clinton's vice president for eight years. Mike Emanuel. George W. Bush had a very famous name. His father, George Herbert Walker Bush, had been before Bill Clinton and been defeated by Bill Clinton. So that was very personal as well. Um, So I think you had a lot of the people who were loyal to the father, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, who were bitterly disappointed that he was defeated in 1992 by Bill Clinton, were determined to come back and kind of avenge that in 2000 by propelling his son to the White House. And so I think they felt very upbeat, that they felt like um, a lot of momentum may have been swinging their way in critical places. Uh, and they were trying to button it up with final stops and trying to make sure that their supporters turned out and you know, not take anything for granted. And, and it, was a, it was a nail-biter, and it was certainly quite a ride uh, there in the final weeks. My opponent likes to say that we were a whole lot better off eight years ago than we are today. My reaction, exactly. He likes to recommend on the basis of his first conclusion that we should go back to the kinds of policies that we had eight years ago. Obviously, you remember, as I do, the big deficits, the big debt, the high unemployment, the repeated recessions, one after another. They were tight. The polls were tight. Very few had Bush winning. Neil Cavuto. Florida was already considered to be a battleground state. Polls in that state were already very, very tight. A lot of people wondered what the effect of Ralph Nader, third party candidate, would be on that state. Uh, But the polls were extremely tight. You see where you all started here? It's going right across the country. And a major progressive political reform movement is going to run through that tape on November 7th with millions of voters behind us and then on to victories in future elections. Ralph Nader was a fascinating um, phenomenon, an utterly humorless human being, um, incredibly earnest in every way. who I think actually has a, I mean, he's, he's very left-wing and all these kinds of things, but he had a, a sort of a, almost an old-fashioned kind of quaint view of civics and politics and all that kind of thing. And, and basically, he was breaking with the Democratic Party, you know, technically on environment stuff because it was green and all that, but really on ethics um, he's he really, you know, I mean, it's very difficult for people who weren't around at the time, you know, because the memory is all about the Lewinsky scandal and all of that. But the White House's dealings with fundraising for the 1996 campaign, taking money from foreigners, 
uh, was a huge deal. And the renting of the Lincoln bedroom, all of that stuff. And if there's one thing that Nader stood for, other than boring audiences to death with his earnestness, was this sort of squeaky clean, good government kind of image. And there was a part of the Democratic Party that, that always resented Bill Clinton for his triangulation, for sort of, uh, try, you know, reaching out to the center, for promising to be a different kind of Democrat, um, and for basically being, you know, uh, depending on your point of view, somewhere between a little corrupt to extremely corrupt. And Nader represented that view on the left. Celebrities are going green. Republicans and Democrats, many say, are virtually indistinguishable. Two candidates are running scared. They are running from the issues that Ralph Nader will bring to the forefront. We have a two-party system. You wouldn't know it. Where's the second party? I think there was anxiety, uh, justifiably, with the Gore folks about Nader's presence um, because Al Gore was a big kind of environmental guy and uh, I think that he was concerned that you know some of the people who were passionate about him could be perhaps more passionate about Nader who was kind of a a single issue kind of guy or, or you know just a um, not a full-fledged candidate but somebody who had a, a a name ID a brand that some people who were in the Gore camp could identify with and might be passionate about. Well, the, typically the way we always treat third-party candidates, uh, it's the Rodney Dangerfield thing. They can't get any respect. They only, the last one who had was Ross Perot uh, in 1992. And, you know, he got almost 20% of the vote. Didn't get a single electoral vote. 20% of the popular vote, that's amazing. Um, and um, you could argue that really was because he was featured in the debates with Bill Clinton and George Bush Sr. at the time. So those debates and not having a seat at them, um, you know, does hurt you. Uh, we tend to have a very anti-third party view in this country that they're just spoilers, uh, you know, but they, they, they always posit it by saying if they had a chance, yeah. And that's kind of what Ralph Nader suffered from, this inability to, 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 to catch the media's attention because the media, both on the left and the right, dismissed him outright. Everybody who pays taxes is going to get tax relief. A family of four in the state of Florida paying $50,000 a year will get a 50% tax cut. But the man says, the man says, thank you, but you shouldn't be thanking me. It's your money to begin with. The surplus is not the government's money. It's your money. And we ought to trust you with your own money. We ought to trust you to make the right decisions for your families. The polls were tight. I mean, you know, there's always a tale of two Floridas, you know, uh, the, the, the southern part of the state, whether you're, you know, you're, you're, you're talking primarily Palm Beach County, you go up north to the Panhandle, that is a, a much more Republican conservative area. And each candidate was strong where you thought they would be, uh, you know, Bush up north, uh, you know, or down south. I, I, I don't remember every single poll, but it was considered a battleground and it was considered fairly tied. It was considered, a, you know, important to win. Future of the United States of America for Central Florida. God bless you. Let's win this election. Well, Florida, <laughs> or as Tim Russert put it, Florida, Florida, Florida. Uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, I, I didn't think that there was much of any chance of us losing Pennsylvania, but you had to go there and you had to campaign. I thought Wisconsin could be close. Uh, Iowa. Those, those those were the places that that 
that he was traveling to. And we, and it was a, it was a pretty intense schedule. Carter and I switched off. So I went on the plane the second to last week and then went back to the headquarters and he left the headquarters and got on the plane for the last week. Let me tell you the message I received the first moment that I walked up on this stage and saw this magnificent crowd. We're going to win New Mexico on Tuesday. I'm getting a message. And the message I'm getting is on Tuesday, we're going to carry Wisconsin and we're going to win the White House. When you get hit in the head by a surprise two by four like that, especially a two by four of your own making, (laughs) you just freeze. You just go, oh, how bad is it going to be? And, no, and nobody knows. You just have to wait for election day to really figure it out and find out. That's what a late-breaking surprise will do to you on a campaign. So help me, God. Thank you all for coming. God bless. Next time on Election Rewind. What can we say about Florida? The focus on Florida is, is always significant. This is the presidency, the future of the country on the line. I never experienced anything like this in my political life. And he's not conceding anything, and I'm not either. Our campaign continues. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.